Uh, and now we're moving into a kind of an area that we don't really spend much time usually thinking about but actually our every day is pretty complex as GPs and actually as our primary care team is growing what we're finding is that we've got our complexity to some extent is growing because other members of the team are dealing with what used to be perhaps the more simple consultations and I'm delighted that Andrew Morris is here he's a GP um, but also a very uh, very good speaker and he's going to talk to us about complex uh, complexity and, and ways to address it. Um, Steph and I are going to stay on screen so we can help him through the session but as you may have heard us just talking about in the break this is meant to be interactive. Uh, please don't let the mute or the raise button, raise hand button stop you from getting involved uh, and it feels like Andrew is very happy to take conversation along the way and Joe and I can unmute people if you do want to talk or if you're happier through the, the Q&A we'll use it as we have already uh, and we're delighted that Charlie's going to join us uh, because Andrew's put her on the spot slightly but saying can can we can we build on some of those complex um sort of patient experiences that she brought for this morning as well so i'll hand over to andrew um but i'm here to support great thank you very much welcome everyone uh back from tea i hope you've had a good stretch of your legs i'm andrew morris i've been a gp for a good while now longer than i like to count um well over 20 years and I do, but I don't work in Wessex now. I used to work in Bath and North East Somerset, which is now part of the Wessex LMCs. Um, I've actually just gone a very short distance. I'm working in Froome now, uh, but it's over a clinical border. Um, so that's Somerset. Uh, so technically not part of Wessex anymore, but um, it's all part of the same work that I developed uh, initially um, when I stopped being a partner in 2018 had various plots and schemes and uh, one of them turned into a plan which I developed with Gareth Bryant the deputy CEO of Wessex LMCs and I set up this adventure called Joined Up Health um, to, to really contain all the education and psychotherapy work that I was thinking of developing. I didn't have very firm plans when I stopped and uh, I suppose Gareth gave me a, a good leg up um, and we put together a course uh, nearly two years ago now called that we called at the time the lost update and um, that was really to address these difficulties around chronic and complex patients and um, I poured you know poured everything that I could from my 20 years of thinking about this into the course and um, it ran for two days it runs for two days and uh, at the end of it Gareth's first comment to me was oh he said that could have been three days so my challenge is always to try and pick out nuggets particularly in a short talk like this and when Julia and I were talking about um, about this talk with this theme of trying to find some some simple things to do with situations that appear complex it's both the overall um, it's both the overall thrust of the education work that I do is helping people to understand the complexity behind apparently simple interventions like move, more movement um, whilst at the same time understanding that we can then use that as a, a simple roadmap to help where the complexity might be otherwise overwhelming and to help us move past situations where either we or the patient feels overwhelmed or there's a sort of sense of stasis and um, because the system that we work in now is 
incredibly complicated and some of the drivers of that are actually coming from the medical model that we use now i'm no i i'm i'm not here to uh dis the medical model it's fantastically useful i use it all the time however it's been very very productive at producing more and more specialism larger and larger teams more and more interfaces and then when we bolt on the lansley health act we've got an incredibly complex system and we've arguably got a society where people's fundamental needs, I'm going to talk about these fundamental needs and resources in a minute, it's quite hard for people to access them. We've, we've built a society that generates complex problems and then very complex procedures for trying to support people with them. So I, hope, I don't know if you can see this, this is a Heath Robinson diagram of how to put the holes into Swiss cheese. <laughs> uh, so, um, so I thought, well, I've got three days of material, which I'm used to cramming into two. What shall I, what shall I pick? And there was, a, there was a reasonably long shortlist. I thought I've probably got time for two or three topics this morning. I thought, well, I could talk about trauma, which is a massive, unhidden driver of a lot of the, of the chronic and complex uh, problems that we, we, we deal with. Um, it would take a bit too long to cover properly. Um, I thought, well, we could look at sleep. It's, it's, it's a really interesting topic, but it would take an hour to do it on its own. Okay, um, diet, I, that's a big topic. <laughs> the messaging in the end is really simple. Um, there's the most robust installation of all the evidence on nutrition and health that uh, you can come up with. Uh, three words, super, but there's a lot of complexity behind that, and as well as a lot of complexity behind why it's hard for us as a culture to see this. Um, we've got, you know, we could look at activities that help meet emotional needs and balance, which is a way of reframing what social prescribing is. Um, Can I interrupt you for a second, Andrew? We've got a couple of comments on the chat about not being able to see your presentation. Probably the easiest way on your Zoom, um, your oh, Zoom God. view is, I know, it's, it, so I'm just talking to the people who've been chatting. Perhaps go up and go to speaker view. Then what you'll do is you'll see the panellists of us, well, we pop up on the top, so you'll still see us, but hopefully we won't distract you. And then you should be able to see uh, Andrew and his presentation. So if My those who've just chatted could could just um feedback through chat that you can see it um and we'll carry on thank you yeah so anyone yeah speak of you sorry yes i thought that that was uh handled I, I thought we could we could um we could look at the whole topic of movement and exercise activity whatever you want to call it um but in the end i thought well what's going to be the most useful things i thought actually it's very hard for me to discuss any of this without telling you what the model is that i'm trying to share so i will show you this idea of that it's got a, it's not a great title for it but nobody's been able to come up with a better one the human givens approach in other words what's given about human beings and working starting with a robust scientifically derived but easy to use model of human function and and building everything out from that um and a lot of people find that i found this model fantastically useful over the last 20 years um so hopefully you will too um I'm going to talk about the importance of the relaxing and calming down. Now, these are these are words that I use with patients. There's a lot of really interesting science behind what this is and a lot of ramifications. But I would say that the, if I could make my first point of reference to Charlie's talk, 
if um, she, she'll either nod or, or shake her head, but it seemed to me that a lot of the story that emerged was a story that I see over and over and over and over again, which is the difficulty that the person's presenting with from a medical perspective is actually their best working model of how to manage difficult emotional arousal. Um, does that sound reasonable? Now, often people need better tools <laughs> for managing this than the one they're using, which might be cutting or an eating disorder, or it might be drinking, as you mentioned, or any of these other things, risky behaviors. So, so how to manage the emotion? Uh, because there is almost no problem in medicine other than, I would say, pre-syncope that cannot be helped by raising vagal tone and, and calming the brain down. So uh, it's, it's almost like that old saying that many of us were taught when we were juniors, you know, in case of cardiac arrest, always take your own pulse first. There's something really, really, that's so easy for us to look past. The, the, we do have this capacity to calm ourselves down at will. And if we can help people to access it, we can make a lot more progress with people. And then the second thing, which we may or may not have time to come on to, but also uh, relates a lot to what Charlie was saying, was once Charlie had a vision of the future that was outside of the frame of reference of this, of this world, then it was possible for, for her to move towards it. Now, this is part of the magic that is contained in systems like motivational interviewing and solution-focused questioning, where what we do is we focus on what's better. What is better? What's valuable? What's really important about better? What does it look like? And how can we start to move towards it? So once you've got a goal, because our, our neurological apparatus, if you like, is built to help us do something very, very fundamental that all living organisms do. And I'm about to explain this because it, this human givens idea is an example of an organizing idea. So another example of an organizing idea that we're perhaps more familiar with is the idea that species emerge and, and creatures become um, experts at their particular mode of life, if you like, through a process of natural selection. Okay, now this, this basic idea, which actually farmers had known for thousands of years with, with artificial selection, <laughs> Um, once applied, this is an incredibly powerful organizing idea, and arguably the whole of biology uh, can be understood with reference to this organizing idea. Now, the human givens organizing ideas were, were produced in an attempt to reduce uh, over-complexity over in the realm of psychological therapy. Back in, this was before CBT became pretty much the dominant form of therapy in the world. They were looking at a situation with hundreds of forms of therapy, all of which had really valuable tools and techniques and ideas, but there was no real way of pulling them all together. So the, the people that put the human givens approach together were really interested in trying to create an operating system with which we could then draw together all of our best understandings of how people function and how to help people have lives that work better for them, enjoy better emotional and mental health. And they did this by going back, to, interestingly, to a biological idea. This observation was that all living creatures are performing the same fundamental trick to maintain their structure, to grow, to thrive, and pass their genes on to the next generation. All living creatures, from the simplest up to the most complex, are doing fundamentally the same thing, which is deploying innate resources. Resources that are, if you like, part of their genetic inheritance, and maybe they also have to develop those resources. We, we have to do that. We have to develop our resources as we, we're not born pre-programmed. 
but you've got innate resources that you use to meet your needs in your environment. Now, I've spent about 20 years trying to see if I could get behind beyond or somehow break this assumption. But so far, I've not been able to break this idea. It seems to me to be an unbreakable four wheel drive, all terrain idea about living creatures. We use our innate resources to meet our innate needs in our environment. And arguably, that's all any of us are ever doing. <laughs> and I find that a really helpful frame of reference. If I'm baffled, confused, upset by something myself or somebody else, say, okay, this person is just trying to meet their needs using their resources as they currently understand them and can access them in their environment. That's all that's happening. And we need to, the human given system, if you like, is a way of helping us keep our bearings in what can be complex situations. And that's the first layer of it. All creatures. And so the human givens as a therapy system, um, they then took that idea and applied it to psychological, social and emotional health. And to do that, they, they started really by looking at needs. What, what does a human being need uh, on the emotional uh, level? And they identified an, a, a fairly long list. You could make a shorter list, but it'd be a bit crude. You could make a longer list, but it would be unwieldy. This is a reasonably good list of our emotional needs. Andrew, I need to interrupt you again. We do, have, we do have participants who are struggling to see because they might be on iPhones. Um, oh, no. So when well, I'm just trying to see if Joe's got a copy of the presentation to put it up and see. Doesn't but everything but, I'm saying, everything that's on the slides, I will say. Exactly. I was just going to say, could you clearly list things out for those who are struggling to sort of see the little bits? I'm sorry. <laughs> I've I've um, I've used my usual format and and I encourage people to use a big screen rather than a phone and all that. So um, when it works very well, <laughs> um, apologies to those of you, but don't worry, you will get the content. I'm going to say it all. So we all need to feel safe enough. That's the first thing we need to. And actually, if we can't meet that need for safety, we become distressed. There's a there's a good way of testing out. Is this an innate emotional need? If I, if I can't meet this need, do I become distressed? That's like the functional test, if you like. So it goes without saying we all need to feel safe enough. We also all need to feel that we can make choices and influence our life. And again, to make a reference back to Charlie's talk, this was, it was a lot about a situation where a lot of things were out of control, finding a point of control. Because ultimately, we feel safer when we feel in control. <laughs> um, we feel calmer. And if you take away people's sense that they've got enough ability to choose and decide, they become distressed. I see this as an emotional need which we all need to respect and support each other with rather than an ethical principle, primarily. Because all of these things are not black and white. We can't, if we were 100% safe, we wouldn't do anything in our lives. We're never completely in control, but we need to experience the sense that we have enough control in the situation we're in. As animals, we met our need for safety very much by being part of a tribe, a community, a clan. Human beings in the wild are not solitary creatures. And the way that the, um, the, way that the community is functioning is that it's pooling its competencies. This would be one way of looking at it. And so to, we need to feel part of a community and we also need to feel that we have capacities, that we have something can, to contribute, things that we can do, skills that we can share. You hear this from older people, they say, I feel useless. You hear it from depressed people. 
feel useless. We need to feel competent. And um, in a really healthy social group, our competencies will closely align to our status. We all get distressed where we're given status above or below our real competency, I think. Most of us, uh, particularly in the old days where medical training wasn't as well organized as it is now, we'd go from this this strange abrupt quantum shift in status when we qualified we didn't feel any more competent than we had a week before but suddenly everyone was giving us a completely different status um it can feel very uncomfortable to, for this not to be we all need to know uh, some people don't like this word this is just latin for standing what is our standing in the group where do we stand in relation to other people that's a way of understanding that so um we also need to give and receive attention and we 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 separate these out because often people are will rate these differently interestingly so we need to receive attention from people and we need to give attention to other people and it's there is something about the quality of attention also that's really really important all of these can be met to a higher or lesser degree and with more or less quality and there's a last thing which is are we meeting them in balance, which I'll come back to in a moment. We all need to feel known, loved and accepted for who we are, by at least one living being. <laughs> OK, we, it might be a pet, but uh, we need to feel that. And we need sometimes in our life, in contrast to this and this, we also need privacy. We need downtime. If we can't get time to our own self and our own thoughts where we're not responding uh, to everything around us. Again, we become distressed. And last, but by no means least, a sense of growth, stretching, meaning or purpose. There are lots of different ways of describing this, but they've all got this sense of expansion. We're learning something. We're serving something bigger than ourselves. We have a sense of the cosmos as being a larger narrative in which our small narrative fits. But these are all about growing beyond our current small self. So the again, I hope this is OK, Charlie, but beautiful example. Once you've got that purpose of getting to medical school and completing your training, everything else, it, 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 it gives your life a sort of impetus, which is which is something we all need <laughs> uh, an incredibly powerful thing. Now, we need to we need to relate these. Um, as you can see, these actually compete with each other but we need to meet them in balance okay so how we're using resources to meet these needs what are our main psychological and emotional resources well um all um animals well all organisms arguably need to store data about the environment and the experiences they have and we can do this uh, to a high degree we can form episodic memories we can reconstruct past events in our imaginations and so because what you don't want to have to do is work everything out from scratch every time you do it. You want to be able to remember stuff, um, either consciously or as implicit learnt. We sometimes call that muscle memory, don't we? Now, the next, and arguably this is this next pair of words is the main way our brain works, is by pattern matching. What the brain is doing constantly is that it is perceiving data, sensory inputs from the world around it, and it's matching those patterns of incoming data to stored patterns of data. Now, that sounds a bit dry. <laughs> so I'm just going to illustrate this with a, with, with a slide. Now, some of you know what this is. 
uh, but most of you just seen black and white blobs, okay? Now, if I fade through the real photograph, the pattern match will go off at some point. And often you get a sort of sense of recognition or aha. Now, it's much simpler. You just go, it's a bee. <laughs> Whereas when you were here, you're going, hang on, you, you were, your brain was very busy trying to make sense of random data. Once you can match it to a prior stored pattern, you just go, it's a bee. And it matches in with all the other things you know and learned about bees. And if you've been stung by a bee, you might even experience a little bit of, for instance, because that's part of the information that you have stored about that whole thing of bees. If, does that make sense? So if I put something up that maybe was like a snake or something, and I always have to ask when I do that, has anyone got a phobia? Because sometimes people get, get really upset when they see the picture, particularly live in a room. And that really illustrates the fact that people will often respond emotionally when the pattern match goes off is the, is the key thing we need to understand. One of the big things I got from this human given system is to understand that we're only rational some of the time. And most of what's going on in our consciousness and in our biology is not anything to do with what we would call thinking. Now, let's just expand on that a bit. So this is a summary of a very complicated book, which still but well worth reading, How Emotions Are Made. The brain is working by making what uh, the neuroscientists called rapid predictions. Okay, so it just does a quick and dirty pattern match to what's coming in. Okay, I think that's a door. I think that's a cushion. I think that's a person over there. You don't actually process all of the data. You just make a prediction because it's close enough to a stored pattern. Okay, so you summarize all your prior learning and then you predict what's out in the world. There's literally not enough neurons in your skull to work everything out from scratch. So we predict. And then if we're calm, <laughs> Not if we're calm, but the calmer we are, the better we're able to do this next step, which is check for error. In other words, is my prediction correct? Now, that's not a conscious process, that none of this is conscious. So we're pattern matching to past experiences, and it's not thinking. It's, this is happening under the radar. It's how we construct language, for instance. It's how we make sense of the sensations coming into our body and summarize them as overall feelings. It's how we compute the sensory data. We may interpret some of that as pain, for instance. Um, so so we're, we're, we're effectively, now there's a lot of nonsense talked about this, that the world out there isn't real. Of course the world isn't out there is real, but what we perceive is, a creation of our brains we don't it's, there, there's a there's a big big vogue at the moment for saying you know the world's not out there which is plainly nonsense but you know um they're getting a bit carried away with this insight that actually the brain is creating the experience you have okay and it's doing so on the base of stored past experience which explains why people have such different maps of the world <laughs> but two people in the same situation and they'll have a completely different interpretation and feeling about that situation because all of these predictions which are happening precognitively are are geared to shifting your physiology in which includes your brain physiology to what is expected to come next now in the human given system we call this an emotional guidance system 
and there are there are four main uh, there are four main primary colors if you like in this emotional guidance system um there's there's fight and flight sort of sympathetic arousal there's parasympathetic which is calm relax rest restore there's a sort of modality of that which mammals and maybe birds have the oxytocin system which is about caring and connecting and then also a lot of um a lot of our patients are in the grip of a fourth mode of this emotional guidance system which is the motivation reward system the dopamine opiate loop now all of these um all of these are, are relevant but they're all very powerful and they're all pre-cognitive and what that that they will they they these systems particularly the fight and flight system can be activated several hundredths of a second faster than you can frame a conscious thought by the time you're thinking the likelihood is that your affect shift is already influencing the content of your mind now this is really important to understand because our patients tell us all the time that they can't understand why they they most of the time people know unless they're fully psychotic they know that their perception of reality and the stuff that's going on in their minds doesn't really fully make sense or maybe not completely helping them but because in our culture we assume that the conscious rational mind is in charge which is i think not true biologically um we then get very upset because we feel it should be what's often happening is that the emotional guidance system is already framing and directing where our conscious mind can go one of the things really important for our work that we use the oxytocin system for is to the, the care and connect is to form rapport with people to form that sense that we understand and get into the space with the other person and actually without that we can't do good therapeutic work arguably at all uh, we need this to actually particularly as soon as things get difficult um we also have a capacity to do things for the sake of them to be creative to play i won't talk about that much but it's really important the point about this kind of creative mode where we try things out and stretch and just do things a bit differently just to see what happens is we need to feel safe to do that patients need to feel safe to creatively explore their problem with us would be another little way of understanding the relationship with those we have got the capacity in the in our complex type of brain to simulate reality now i prefer this term to mind i prefer the term imagination to mind because the word imagination seems to me to capture all the very many modes in which our minds work other than thinking okay so we might be picturing things we might be having conversations with ourselves there are actually lots of different modes in which this reality simulator can work it's probably evolved from reality simulation in REM sleep I'm just running through the full set we won't do much on that and we can use our minds in a couple of distinct ways we can be quite sequential and logical or we can also think much more like metaphors we just go aha it's just, it's like this or it's like that and we get an overall pattern recognition mode and it's really really important um to recognize that a lot of our patients aren't very reasonable <laughs> they're not reasoning much and they may not have actually been given much training in the, their family culture and or their formal education and how to use this kind of sequential logic um and some people are just very sometimes called right brain they just you know they have this sort of overall pattern that branching mode fortunately 
And this is one of the big things you learn how to do in mindfulness. We are able to observe all of this happening. So there is a place or a functionality within our system that allows us to observe the whole system in operation. And that's a very calm point to be in and to find. And um, it's one of the big values in mindfulness training is that it makes, it helps people to become better and compassionate observers of what's going on in their internal world. And once we can do that, of course, it's much easier for us to, to change or to see things differently or whatever it is. So we've got all these needs and we've got these fantastic resources. How come life isn't working perfectly for us? Now, we could talk for a long time about this, but the system posits three main reasons why people can't meet their emotional needs in balance. Or in fact, their wider needs in balance that works just as well once we add in physical needs. In fact, the system, and that's really what my two day course is about, is about understanding the whole of health from this perspective. So the needs are not met either because the environment is sick. And I'm really, I love that this is reason number one. The, it's the environment. The person just finds themselves in an environment which in, does not enable them to meet their emotional needs in balance. And that's why they're distressed. The second reason is that maybe that the guidance system is damaged. In other words, the emotional learning, just to use a simple phrase, the way that the automatic pre-conscious emotional apprehension and response to the world has been acquired through life experiences is such that the, the response becomes problematic. Um, so I'll go to the bottom one first. This is the, sort of our basic conditioning, where we brought up in a household which was optimistic, pessimistic, where people were kind, where they were violent. What sort of in, that sort of low level uh, conditioning is very, very important. We may have had phobic experiences where despite our thinking brain, we automatically avoid and are fearful of things. And it may be that we're actually right at the end of the spectrum of conditioning, we're traumatized where we don't just get phobic symptoms, we also get recall, replay type symptoms. So, it, but it could be that the system's been damaged by drugs, or it could be that it's, you know, we're not well nourished enough, we haven't got the nutrients we need for the emotional system to work as it otherwise might, or might have been injured, or maybe genetic, of course. But most of these, particularly the last two headings, boil down to the environment was sick. <laughs> so either the environment is sick or the environment was sick. So it's still not your fault. One of the reasons I love this system is it's very seldom my patient's fault that they're suffering. But that it, it's a kind of, there's a lot of detail we can bring to that. Julia, far away. So I can see you're probably going to come to this point next. So I'm just going to put it out there for yes. you to, to answer. Jacqueline's asked a question. Andrew, if a person lacks a particular innate need, while we're yes. thinking about need and that resourcefulness, do they overcompensate in others? Um, yes. Yeah, so so often, often people meet their needs out of balance. Um, often. I mean, we, I'm really going through a, a, a rich model. As I said, I've been exploring this for 20 years. So I'm just introducing it to you now. Um, but I hope you can see this is quite a powerful way of looking at people's motivations, their resources, their capacity to function in various situations. So um, 
because I think we can summarize this all as saying, if we can meet our needs in balance, health is optimized. And it, it doesn't matter too much whether we're talking about that from the perspective of physical health or whether it's, um, whether it's um, just mental and emotional health. But to do that, we require the ability to access our resources. And we also need to have developed our resources. As human beings, we have to develop our innate resources and we need the environment to be conducive to that. Now, just I'm just going to draw the curtain because the sun suddenly come out and altered my, my lighting. I hope you can see a bit better now. Um, so this is, I'm not expecting you to read this, uh, but I'm gonna direct you to these resources in a minute. This is what two sides of A4 looks like if we put together all those key needs and resources. We've got the nine emotional needs, Am I abusing my imagination? Am I sleeping enough? Can I relax? Am I having some fun? Am I active? How's my diet? That, so we can boil this down to quite a simple checklist, but there's a lot of complexity behind it. So I've, that's, that's the human givens model in a nutshell. Um, it's a really helpful way I found of thinking about almost any problem, but particularly emotional and mental health problems, because in the end, instead of thinking, what box does this patient fit in? What disease category do I need to give them? Are they a personality disorder? Are they traumatized? Have they got an addiction? I'm actually, those for me are secondary labels. What I'm interested in is what needs are they currently unable to meet or that are being met out of balance? What resources are they either using wrongly or they're not able to access for some reason? Have they got missing or abused resources? And how much of all of this is to do with their environment? And that seems to me always to bring me back to an actionable, humane checklist. I think in terms of the first two talks we had this morning, it helps me bridge between the, the sort of very formal care model with the, with the sort of guidelines and the diagnostic criteria and the sort of thing that Charlie was talking about, which is a lived narrative <laughs> where a human being is, is having a life that is working more or less well at any given time and and the person's just you know they're living their life they're doing the best thing they can at that point and um so it helps me to kind of move between those two in a way that still feels grounded and not abstract actually very kind of concrete but are there any questions about that uh, model before i just move on to talk briefly about calming down yeah, Jacqueline's come back at you and it's a good question. As a GP, you know, our time is definitely yeah. limited. And she yeah. said it's interesting, but how do we explore this within a 10 minute consultation with a complex patient while we're presumably dealing with something else that they've brought to us yeah. as well? So um, the, the quick answer is that it shows up in the end once you kind of let it digest and sink in. It shows up, I find, in my attitude, my assumptions and the language I use. Okay. So I'm not necessarily spending longer. I'm just asking different questions, perhaps. I'm, I'm explaining things in, in different ways. I'm using my language really, really carefully. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just sampling out of a big arc of material, which sort of is a, is a, is a bigger arc. But essentially, it's, about, it's not about doing something extra. It's about doing what we're already doing in a way that is more effective and at meeting the patient where they are helping them to understand the predicament they're in and moving them forward. That I would summarize it like that. This isn't extra. This is the way I do the day job, if you see what I mean. 
sometimes I do spend more time, but I tend to do that um, as a conscious choice in order to save myself and them time later. Okay, so I'll front load new depression and, and really make sure we get off to a good start. And then I sp seem to spend less time having conversations over subsequent months and years about medication, which is often helpful. So, um, so uh, is this the philosophy behind the book, The Chimp Paradox? It's very, very similar, uh, I'd say, Annie. Uh, very, very similar. So these ideas, when um, they were put together in the late 90s, were completely revolutionary. And in the intervening 20 years, they've become more and more mainstream, I would say. But I still find this the clearest way of enunciating them that I've come across. So um, just briefly, um, you're not going to be able to read this slide because I've realized that you're, um, you're some of you are watching this in a format which will make it hard. The way I normally present, this is legible because I've checked it with my attendees. Okay, these are all the things that happen when, you're when a chronic fight and flight or threat defense response is operating in the human being. I'm going to read them out because this is our surgery. Increased heart excitability, limiting blood flow to the skin, limiting blood supply to bowels, slowing activity in bowels, tendency to blood clotting, flattened cortisol curve, insulin resistance, suppressed reproductive system, suppressed immune system, suppressed healing, loss of collagen, decreased bone synthesis, adrenal gland primed to make more adrenaline, raised blood pressure, fluid retention, increased blood sugar and blood fats, um, increased tumour activity and increased blood supply to tumours, decreased lifespan and fatigue. That's all. <laughs> we, meanwhile, in your brain, the key thing I'd like to signpost you to is that in the brain, a chronic threat defence response it tends to, it, the, the whole thing neuro adapts. You basically go into threat monitoring mode. Your memory system gets simplified. But the key thing for us as GPs is that our system becomes sensitised to painful stimuli. In other words, it's almost as if the gain or the volume is turned up on sensations so that the subliminal becomes uncomfortable, the uncomfortable becomes painful, the painful becomes agony and so forth. So this, once we understand this is just neurophysiology, chronic stress, chronic threat defense makes us more, makes our experience of our bodily sensations increasingly uncomfortable through to painful. So it's really, really important to understand so what we can see in summary is that a lot of the things we're dealing with a lot of the time in general practice, a chronic threat defense response is synergistic with those pathologies, whether they're IBS, chronic pain, heart disease, diabetes, almost anything. The threat defense response seems to function in the, it's not the only cause, but it's synergistic uh, with a, a vast array of pathologies that fill our working week. And because the, this threat defense response is hard to measure, I can't measure it like hemoglobin or CRP, um, we don't have a way of stratifying it into our risk model for, let's say, heart disease. Um, but this is the famous Whitehall 2 study, which showed the excess um, heart disease between the highest and lowest um, sort of ranked groups in the civil service cohort. Only a third of that excess risk was attributable to all the things we normally talk about, diet, exercise, um, smoking. Two thirds of it could be tailed back to various physiological markers of chronic threat defense response, including this thing, heart rate variability, which is simply the beat to beat 
variation in the heart rate. When we've got a balanced system with plenty of vagal tone, parasympathetic tone, we see this coherent beat-to-beat -beat variability. When the threat defense system predominates, we see an incoherent beat-to-beat -beat variability. Now, there's quite a lot of um, sort of waffle talked about this, but it is, it does, um, it's a real physiological measure. Sadly, real-time biofeedback um, software is no longer available. It was available for about 10 years. But here's a patient of mine in the surgery. This is just a recording of the trace. Um, I taught them how to switch on this parasympathetic response by pacing their breath. And you can see they were a bit incoherent. They settled down a bit. We had a bit more of a chat and then we did a bit more breath pacing together. Here's an example of following that. So I mean, for those of you that can see this, follow it through. It's speeded up to start with. We're recording a baseline. Tragically, the software is no longer available. And then all we do is we breathe in for about four seconds and out for about six. So do join in with this. So breathe in, three, four, and out, two, three, four, five, six, and then in, And then out, two, three, four, five, six. And they don't have to be big breaths, just gentle breaths through the nose. Just in for about four and then gently and slowly out. About a count of six. That's all that bar is showing you. In, three, four, and then out, two. If you're feeling dizzy, it's because the tidal volume's too big. If you're not, if you're feeling calmer, you're doing just great. So you breathe in. And if you can see the screen, you can see that the patient that I recorded doing this, they're moving into coherent heart trace very quickly. And most people report, with a few exceptions, they feel calmer when they do this. So I can't see you all on my screen, but I'm going to trust that the vast majority of you are noticing just within those first, don't keep following now, it's speeded up again, if you can see it. <laughs> You're feeling calmer. Now that's because there's a whole load of physiological mechanisms that are activated um, by this technique, which is nestling and lurking and hidden within myriad different apps, um, traditional techniques and all sorts of practices that people have used over the millennia to calm down at will. Because the problem we human beings all face is that we've got an incredibly powerful imagination that can get into a vicious loop with our emotional guidance system. The emotions focus our, what's in our imagination in a particular way, and then our emotional guidance system reads the contents of our imagination as if it was really happening. And that often will, we'll get, you can hear this all the time, and you, we all experience it. You get this amplification between the contents of your imagination and your emotional state, your affect. And the more and more that happens, the stranger and more focused down and inflexible and rigid our thinking becomes so if we're if so what's going on behind this 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 um this shift in physiology what are the mechanisms there's direct effects through the vagus nerve there's sort of some very clever physiology to do with baroreceptors and and sort of um uh, sort of uh, resonance there's a whole thing about 
the deep breathing people say take a deep breath that'll only work if you do it once because most people when they're chronically stressed are hyperventilating so one deep breath does stimulate the pulmonary stress stretch receptors but if you keep doing it you'll probably <laughs> you know get tingly tongue and tight chest and all the rest of it but a deep breath to start with and stretching the lungs seems to be really helpful it, if you get this the tidal volume and the pace into a nice natural slow pace it rebalances the blood gases which are probably out of whack if you're in a chronic threat defense response there's probably something to do with relaxing the chest and the shoulders and just breathing with the belly which is a in, really important aspect of getting this technique really working well uh, that that movement that increased abdominal excursion it probably has some direct vagal stimulus and last of all there seems to be something clever going on between the way the parasympathetic and the sympathetic drives are showing up at least in the heart rate there seems to be some kind of dynamic balancing going on and then last of all as we begin to relax our pattern matching system in our brain specifically in the insula is going oh you're feeling better and we start to pattern match the stuff about feeling karma we start to pattern match about feeling you know better in various ways so there's a whole series of physiological um processes going on you can reassure people that these sorts of techniques are not the imagination they're not distraction they're not meditation this is activating our physiology to switch on our parasympathetic system and the key ingredients to all these techniques are as follows we refocus our attention but not in a stressed way we just allow ourselves to go into a new rhythm or we allow our breathing to change we we get to one way or another to about six breaths a minute that seems to be roughly where most people settle some people go faster some people go slow but it's about six breaths a minute and generally speaking you spend less than half of each breath cycle breathing in so you tend to breathe out for longer than you breathe in and then um, some techniques involve putting some resistance into the upper airway, pursing the lips, humming, singing, chanting. And then using the diaphragm as the main muscle of breathing. And the way I just I finally, after about 15 years of teaching this, I finally cracked it. It's all about switching off the other muscles, allowing them to relax so that the diaphragm will work on its own. You're not, the diaphragm's working anyway. You can't stop it you just what you're actually helping people to do is to let the other muscles go in the belly and around the chest and between the ribs so those are the active ingredients and they show up in endless variations in cbt it tends to be taught as tower of box breathing uh, andy viles managed to put his name all over a 3000 year old breathing technique called pramayana there's the yoga technique called ocean breath there's singing there's chanting you can do it with tai chi or yoga or sometimes pilates there's a thing called heart math where you recall positive emotions as you breathe um, i find that's a bit much for many of my patients so i tend to teach the breathing as a separate set of skills or and obviously it shows up in meditation techniques of various kinds and there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of apps but from my point of view as a clinician apart from helping people to buy into relaxing the other key issue we face is getting them to do it for long enough now i've put um along with health connections mend it i've put together a whole set of resources which i'm about to signpost you to um, to help people 
get past the various barriers which i haven't got time to talk about but i've identified over the last 15 to 20 years a number of ways in which people don't arrive at the point where they can access this innate resource because that's what it is this is an innate physiological resource that we all have as human beings we are able to organize our respiratory rate at will that's actually one of the reasons we've been able to develop spoken language for instance um, so we're very unusual land animals in that regard. We're able to organize our breath at will. There's a conscious override. So we can, using our attention, we can activate this vagal response. And the important thing about that, which I touched on earlier, but I need to emphasize, is that it's one of the best ways of breaking out of unhelpful mental and emotional states. <laughs> because fundamentally, most of them are being driven by heightened emotional arousal. That's the heat under the pot. We can describe all the bubbles and swirls and turbulence in the water and the steam rising off it in endless ways, but fundamentally, there's too much heat under the pot. And if we can turn that down, if we can introduce this vagal tone, calm down the emotional guidance system, calm down the affect state, then the mind, it becomes freer to operate. It's it's almost impossible to access your observing self, for instance, while you are profoundly upset. It's very, very hard to think clearly in the way that you would otherwise be trained to in CBT training if you're highly emotionally aroused. You usually need to calm down first to get back best access to all those other resources that you've got. Because often, once people are able to calm down and get a clear picture of their situation, um, often I find it surprising how often people are actually very clear about what needs to change and what needs to happen for them to feel better. Um, but if we leave people in a state of heightened emotional arousal, because uh, currently the only real way we manage this is with diazepam and pregabalin, which are blunt instruments with lots of side effects and drawbacks and street value. So what this is, is about accessing this innate resource of calming the emotional guidance system down at will. And so um, I'm just going to click past this. There are a whole load of things on my website, which I'm about to show you. It's called Joined Up Health. You're very welcome to use these resources. Um, there's a resources section. Um, and these. this is the section that deals with relaxation. Okay. There's, a, there's the one I just showed you, all the needs and resources. There's a general audit. There's a description of the five main ways that human beings relax. Amongst this is the this is the the, the fifth one, but it's the most portable. <laughs> it's the one that has least need for external circumstances. You can always do it for yourself. That's the key document. And then there's one about helping make time to do it, because if people are chronically stressed, it may take 10, 15 minutes to fully switch the fight and flight down. And that's often where people, they've been shown the technique, they use it for two minutes, they feel slightly better, and the minute they stop, the arousal pops back up again. It's interestingly about the same time as a diazepam tablet takes to work, and that is the frame of reference that I use for patients that have used diazepam in the past. I say this will take about as long to work as a medication. You have to give it about that amount of time. So um, taking time, getting the belly moving, which some people need more help with than others. I've just tried to separate them out so that we haven't got one sort of vast book. Um, there's some audios people can listen to if they don't want to read. There's some audios. 
Um, there's some applications, how to use these sort of techniques for panic, when you're nervous about something, various other just pointers, simple pointers. That's part of the diet section, never mind. Okay, so so those um, those are really helpful resources. I use them all day, every day. Um, admittedly, I've been thinking about them for a long time. But if you've got a patient who wants to feel karma <laughs> and they're willing to try something, and you've got this clear understanding, which I hope you all have now, that breathing techniques are a physiological intervention. They're not a psychological technique, but they have profound effects on your on on how your mind is functioning. Julia, fire away. Yeah, so we've got a comment from Elizabeth. You sound like my yoga teacher. Control the breath, control the mind. Um, yes. And a comment that I'd like to make, uh, you know, in, in with other hats that I wear, actually, we can use these as GPs when we're yeah. feeling stressed or worried um, or we've had a difficult consultation. Absolutely. Um, we have got the ability. So this is resources for our patients. But let's remember they're resources yeah. for us as well. Um, I'm aware of time. Um, and yeah, I'm going I, to summarise the next one rather than I, do it in, in length. Yeah. Can I put Mark's question to you? Yeah, um, so it. this comes back to the checklist, you know, when you put them up. Um, have you used these checklists of needs as a questionnaire for the patient to reflect on it themselves? And do you do it within the consultation is his question. No, no, it's a tool to, it's a tool. It was actually originally requested by attendees on my two day course. They said, could we have a checklist for this? Because I'd like to send my patients away to think about it and come back. And I'm actually about to run a pilot project doing that systematically in the practice uh, because I've, this is such an implicit model for me, uh, but I'm going to do so, I'm going to try and build up a, a little sort of piece of action research on that soon. Um, the last um, thing that I want to mention, and I'm going to cut to the chase here. I'm going to summarize this is this idea of solution-focused questioning. Now, the reason why this is such a powerful technique is that it is uses our brain for what it's for, <laughs> arguably. Like all the rest of our apparatus, our brain is there to help us meet our needs in our environment. And the way we experience that as human beings is we have goals. We have destinations that we experience ourselves as moving towards. We have plans, we have desires. Now, what solution-focused questioning does is it radically, very radically, ignores the problem and says, what does better look like? What does better look like? Now, I'm just going to talk briefly about two applications of this. Um, I haven't got time to cover these slides in depth. My apologies. I wasn't sure how this was all going to fit in, um, but I'm just going to have to click through these slides. Um, right. One way of summing this up is called the miracle question. Now, I don't use this very often, but it summarizes the technique, okay? First of all, it's make-believe. We start with words like imagine or suppose. Imagine, suppose. We're not talking about reality anymore. Just imagine that one morning you wake up and the problem, the pain, the depression, the anxiety is gone. Okay. It's gone. And um, you need rapport for this, by the way, as you might have spotted. It's not going to work out of the blue. Um, how would you and other people know that it's gone? In other words, what will you be doing? If you were made a movie of that day, what will you see in the movie? What will other people notice that you're doing? So essentially, this is an invitation for somebody to make believe what their recovery looks like. And it's the very astute amongst you will have noticed that I've shifted tense. 
I started saying will rather than would. Okay, what will you be doing? Because what you're doing is you're presupposing this is where they're heading. And that's quite powerful because you start talking about it in the present tense. What, what are you doing? What are you doing in this day? Um, now, obviously, this is not a technique that you can use bold and outright like this for anyone, and particularly not in general practice. But it sometimes, particularly with chronic pain, this is a useful way of starting to map actually what might we start to try and work towards? Because, because then what you start asking is what's good about that? What's the most valuable thing about that? What is it like when you can do that? What else gives you that feeling of freedom of movement, for instance? What else, you know, so what you're doing is you're building a conversation that is concrete, that is not abstract. It's not about the absence of things. It's about activities and experiences occurring in the future. And then you can start to work with the person and say, well, if, we, if we're, where would you say you are on a scale of one to 10 in terms of being able to do that now? And they say, well, I'm at one. I say, well, what would it take just to get to one and a half or two? And then you just start to chunk it down and you start to make proximate goals. Now, it's a really, really useful technique because it's incredibly powerful affect shifting technique, for one thing, because as soon as the person imagines better, they feel better. Because the emotional guidance system is reading out the contents of the imagination as if they were real events. And our pattern matching process is that you start to feel like that. Does that make sense? Which is why it's one of the answers to one of the earlier questions is by choosing words that are about recovery, about solution, that presuppose the patient has agency. All of these simple shifts in our language are landing as patterns in the patient's uh, system. They're apprehending those patterns and they're pattern matching to them. If we sit and we talk about problems, barriers, difficulties, upsets, that is the pattern match that we're both sitting with in the conversation. Whereas if we talk about better, we're already feeling better, both of us. <laughs> okay, that's that's an extreme example. I'll go past this. Just a simple example from my experience. I got very stuck with a patient, a young woman who was um, not somebody I normally saw. And I only saw them twice because this was locum, but it's such a good story. I'm going to tell you the story anyway. Um, the first time I tried to do some psychoeducation, taught how to calm down. In that instance, that wasn't what she wanted to really do. So the next time I followed her up, she wasn't a lot better, about a week or two later. And she was being very violent, aggressive, unpleasant at home and about to lose her job. She was about 17 or 18. And I just said, OK, what would it, what, I asked her the miracle question. What will it be like when you're better? And um, she said, uh, she took her a while to get into it. And she said, she said, my room will be tidy. I said, okay, that's really interesting. I just latched onto it. Okay, what would it take for your room to be? What will it be like when your room's tidy? Oh, well, I'll feel this and that and the other. And how will that help that your room's tidy? Well, I'll feel more in control. And we just explored how fantastic it was going to be when the room's tidy. She went home, tidied her room, and there was a step change in her behavior, in her ability to manage her emotions. Because we, because, but I would never have imagined that tidying the room was what a solution-focused process for her would be. So you're working, the other power of this is that you work with the patient's model of reality rather than ours. What does better look like to you? What's meaningful to you? What, what's a meaningful destination to you? Not an HB1C or ticking a certain box and all, you know, it, these are all relatively abstract to patients. What's meaningful to the patient may be something we can't even 
anticipate. So solution focusing is really, really, really value, really valuable. So um, just to wind up, because um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I do need to stop right now. Um, there are, I'm running one more course before my current set of RCGP accreditation runs out on the 12th and 19th, I think it is, of March. They're Fridays. I've got a few places left. You'd be very welcome to join me on this two-day course. If you want to come, that's the bit.ly link to the booking. If you want to use my resources, go to my website. You're very, very welcome to use them, either for your own self-care and resilience and or with your patients. But I hope that's given us a taster of how there are some simple principles and some simple resources that can underlie a kind of approach to what are otherwise very complicated patients and that we can use across the board, regardless almost of what it is we're grappling with. Absolutely. Okay. Andrew, thank you.